0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, brought to you by Biotechniques. This show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Annie Colson, and in this episode, we'll be discussing sequencing for conservation, why it's important, the techniques used and how it can influence conservation efforts, and we'll also discuss the importance of fighting biodiversity loss in a more local-centric way. Coming up in the episode, we discuss the technologies used for sequencing in the field.
1: The Minion is a tiny little device that can plug into a computer or another bioinformatics brain and be brought anywhere in the world.
0: The impact of exporting samples to big sequencing facilities.
1: When you're exporting samples, you're also exporting opportunity. And so by keeping the samples in the country, we're opening up the door for ecuadorian scientists to analyze these samples instead of people in a foreign country
0: and the importance of sequencing studies for conservation
1: once we have this database then we can use that to fight against these corrupt interests and to say hey look you know this area is one of the most biodiverse in the world and has all of these species that we hardly know anything about and if we let our breed get the best of us we could lose you know millions billions of years of evolutionary history that we're just starting to understand
0: my guest today is field researcher zane Libke. zane it's great to have you on the show
1: hey thanks for inviting me
0: so to start us off could you please tell us a little bit about what you do and where you're based
1: yeah, so I'm the director of the genomics lab at the Centro de Investigación Sumac Causa in Situ, and we're an educational research station located in the Ecuadorian cloud forest. And so I've been working there for a little over a year, and in my time I've worked to bring portable genetic sequencing to the research projects that we carry out there. So I have a big interest in herpetology and reptiles and amphibians, and kind of born out of that. And so there I work on research projects using nanopore sequencing in the field to inform conservation efforts, to describe new species, to detect endangered species. And on top of that, I think the most important thing really that I do is carry out educational programs. Uh, So Sumat Khao San Situ is a very educationally focused research station. And we've thus far carried out four field courses aimed at capacitating students and professionals in molecular biology techniques adapted to the field. Yeah, so basically last year, a group of researchers came to SUMAC, Mauricio Ortega, who's, who's a professor at the University of ICHUM, and two of his former students, Walter Kielmbachin, who has a specialist in eDNA, and uh, Grace Carolina Reyes, who's a really amazing activist and researcher who is really, really popular on social media and does a lot of really great work there. And so together we started giving these these courses on things, mostly DNA barcoding, but we've also done one on, on eDNA. And now Grace is kind of leading the charge on all of this, doing courses on all kinds of things from the DNA sequencing to now we're doing an, an apiary course on bees. In the future, there will be a master zoology course. There's already been an illustration course. And yeah, so Grace has really been instrumental to all of this. And it was really incredible because when we first started out, we weren't really sure, you know, how much interest there would be. But once we had this first course and interacted with the students, we realized, oh my God, these are students that are pursuing degrees in molecular biology, but have never touched a pipette. And the reason for that is twofold. One, a lot of these universities don't have the facilities required to do molecular biology. Some of them do, and some of them have really, really good good labs. But even more so than that, over the past few years with the pandemic, most students have not had the opportunity to step foot in a physical laboratory. And so we we really, like, right off the bat, encountered all these students who, who were just you know this infectious excitement to learn and get experience doing all of these techniques so it's been really cool to to be able to provide that that opportunity to now over 80 different students and i think that's something that's that's really important going forward cuz as most of us listening to this podcast might know you know theory is one thing practice is another and we have to we have to work to hone both of them So that's what I do in Ecuador. And more recently, I returned from a a three-month stint at the Wildlife Conservation Lab in Madre de Dios, Peru at Los Amigos Biological Station, where I worked on all kinds of projects ranging from DNA barcoding to pathogen monitoring to eDNA, mitochondrial genomes and things along that line. So yeah, that's a little bit about me.
0: And how did you get into this job?
1: Well, so... I mean, as a kid, I was always fascinated by nature and especially things like snakes and, and frogs and reptiles, things that, that other people, frankly, found <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time kind of learning about these things and, and going out into the woods where I grew up in Indiana. And I just took in a lot of information. It was, it was something that I really loved. But I never really thought that it was something that I could turn into a career. I always kind of thought, oh, you know, this is just a hobby. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with all this. It might not be something that's useful to anyone is kind of what I thought. But then I had the opportunity to study abroad in Ecuador my junior year in college, and it completely changed my perspective. I had the opportunity to see some incredible ecosystems. Ecuador has some of the best diversity on the planet. And especially what really inspired me while I was there was the opportunity to meet some amazing scientists who are working and doing amazing work. And that kind of made me realize, wow, there are people that are out here that are doing this kind of stuff that I've dreamed about doing. There's still a lot of research that needs to be done. And this is somewhere that I can make a contribution. So yeah, so after I returned from Ecuador the first time, I immediately just wanted to get back there. And then the pandemic hit and of course slowed everything down. But it was around that time that I read a paper by Aaron Pomerantz about sequencing in the field. And I learned about this little device called the Minion that is portable, the size of your phone, and you can bring it anywhere in the world. And I just had this mental explosion at that moment and realized, (laughs) oh, my God, this would be revolutionary. Because Ecuador has some of the highest biodiversity in the world, and specifically the region that I'm working in, where Sumat Kaosai Institute is located, the, the Yanganati Sangay ecological corridor is actually right now, it seems to be the most biodiverse place on the planet. And so to study that kind of biodiversity, where especially we're dealing with a lot of cryptic diversity, animals that might look similar, but really are different, distinct species that might need distinct conservation efforts. Genetic techniques are, are extremely useful, but sadly, those techniques are just not available to researchers working in places like Ecuador and Peru. And there's many, many incredible researchers that are working there. And just because of this lack of access to sequencing, they aren't able to use sequencing to inform taxonomic descriptions, to do eDNA analysis, to do all of these things that the science world is really rallying around at this moment. And so my goal was really to just bring that type of sequencing into the conservation sphere and open up that capacity to researchers working in the area and kind of see what we can get done. And so after graduating from, from college, I, I moved down to Ecuador and started working at, at Sumac in Situ as the director of the, the genomics lab down there. Yeah, it's everything has moved pretty quickly since then.
0: Amazing. And so you've touched upon it just then, but why is sequencing important to biodiversity and conservation?
1: It's a great question. First, I think we have to really understand how conservation is funded. As most of you might know, conservation doesn't get a lot of funding. And so it's really important for conservationists to spend those dollars in the best way possible. And one of the ways that conservation is carried out is by actually creating reserves. And so I work primarily with a group called Fundacion Ecominga that's based in Ecuador, and they have a system of, of reserves throughout the country where they're working to protect unique ecosystems, right? And in order to get these grants to protect these areas, to hire park guards, to carry out research, it's really important to identify endangered species because those endangered species are things that are on the red list and people can point at and say, oh, we're protecting this area. There's X amount of endangered species here, so this area is more important to protect than this area. And frankly, sadly, today, in today's world, we have to make those decisions in between protecting one area or another. But in a place like Ecuador, a large amount of that biodiversity consists of undescribed species. Currently, from our research, we've identified at least 18 undescribed species of frogs, And those are species of frogs that because they aren't described, they don't have an IUCN red list listing. And so while most of them are highly endemic and likely endangered or critically endangered, because they're not described, there's no way to get that rating. And as a result, grants and other formal types of funding are much harder to get because there is no formal description of the species and there's no formal knowledge of whether or not it's endangered or not. And so a lot of the research that we do focuses on generating sequence information for those animals, and then using that to describe the species to try to eventually get it to a point where we can have a red listing for it. And then as well, I think things like eDNA are starting to become really important. We are currently working on a project to use eDNA to try and detect endangered species and critically endangered species in these sorts of areas. And so... You know, species that are incredibly rare take lots of man hours and lots of power to go out into the field. And a lot of times very, very remote areas, high mountains with tons of cloud forests that are very inaccessible. And sending people up there all the time and the amount of time that it would take to find those animals is really expensive and very difficult. And so with eDNA, we can instead take a sample of the water. Um, that might be coming from the base of the mountain and pick up frogs that are at the top of the mountain. And that's something that's really incredible. We're lucky here at Sumat Kausai in situ to have been doing herpetological surveys for the past five, six years really. And in that time we've amassed thousands of man hours out in the rainforest looking for frogs, for snakes, whatever it might be. And so we've been able to encounter a lot of species and the last published count was 135 and we're already finding more which goes to show that this is an incredibly diverse place. And of course, most places don't have a sampling effort that's going to be that directed. If there is a sampling effort at all, it might be some scientists that come by for a week and do a survey and then leave thinking that they have a complete picture when, when they really don't. And so this issue of sample completeness, while it can be resolved statistically and with things like sample completeness curves, I think techniques like eDNA can help to start to uh, mitigate that amount of, of sampling effort time that is needed to invest in order to really get a good picture of the full diversity of a place. And yeah, I really just think that right now we're kind of on the frontier of sequencing being used for conservation. I think we're really just starting to scratch the surface of the ways that this technology can help.
0: So you mentioned the Minion, but what sort of equipment and technologies are you using?
1: Mainly when I started this project, I wanted to make it as cheap as possible, mainly because I didn't really have much funding But also because I wanted this to be something that is accessible to people all over the world and and to conservationists, especially in high biodiversity areas like Ecuador. So mainly what we use are very low cost extraction methods. So we use the hotshot DNA extraction method. We're starting to make our own buffers and things like that to really lower those costs. So basically kind of quick, dirty DNA extractions from biopsies where we're just lysing the cells. And then at least with frogs, there's not really any inhibitors or things like that that inhibit a simple PCR. So we go directly to a PCR and we do that in the mini PCR portable thermocycler. So these are little tiny PCR machines that are, again, about the size of maybe a few phones. Mm -hmm. And very low power and can be brought anywhere. So we use those for the PCR. And then again, for any indexing or or multiplexing where we're adding kind of tags, molecular tags to the ends of these sequences. We also use a PCR and we're using the mini PCR once again for that. And then we move on to library preparation, things like that then sequencing on the Minion platform, using mostly the smaller flow cells, which are called flongals, which have a throughput of around two gigabases, which, as far as sequencing goes, that's not a lot, right? Two billion base pairs. But for the research that we're doing, where we're, we're mostly doing amplicon based sequencing, that's more than enough throughput. And it really lowers down the cost of sequencing when we use that kind of flow cell.
0: So, what are the benefits of using the Oxford Nanopore platform?
1: First off for a little intro on nanopore sequencing. So nanopore sequencing is a really interesting technique to sequence DNA where Basically, we have flow cells that have a biological membrane within them that has in between hundreds to thousands of channel proteins called nanopores that are connected to small little electrodes. And as the DNA and basically those channel proteins grab our DNA sequences and thread them through the pore. And as they're being thread through the pore, the voltage change is read by those electrodes and then translated into base pairs. And so in that way, we're actually directly reading the DNA that's coming from our sample. So that's pretty incredible, I think. And it can also be used for things like RNA and maybe one day things like proteins. But for conservationists and researchers, the really amazing thing about it is it's the size of a cell phone. (laughs) The Minion is a tiny little device that can plug into a computer or another bioinformatics brain and be brought anywhere in the world the benefits, they kind of hit you in the face because at least working in other countries, exportation of samples is a big issue. It's very expensive to export samples. And if you're working with things like endangered or critically endangered species, forget it. I mean, IUCN and CITES are these big international treaties that rightfully so work to prevent the exportation of those samples. So it makes it really difficult to do any sort of DNA sequencing work in places like Ecuador where. Basically, up until now, all of the big places with sequencing capabilities are sequencing facilities in the United States and Europe that are these massive, high-throughput sequencing laboratories, where basically they have all the equipment there and can do it on such a high-throughput level that it, that it becomes inexpensive. But it places in places like Ecuador, the exportation is really difficult. And so the Minion allows us to actually sequence the DNA without ever leaving the country. And so... You know, first, you have that benefit of getting around exportation. But then the, the second thing that I really think is the most important is the science and research gains in the country because of this. You know, when you're exporting samples, you're also exporting opportunity. And so by keeping the samples in the country, we're opening up the door for ecuadorian scientists to analyze these samples instead of people in a foreign country and also you know we can get into the theme of rights to data ecuador is a country that has actually by law all genetic information is owned by the government and so because ecuador recognizes that one of their biggest natural resources is their massive biodiversity and so if we're exporting this biodiversity and exporting this data then What good does it serve Ecuador, right? And so by keeping this whole process within the country, we can create opportunities for local researchers. We can ensure that this data stays within the country and benefits the country itself. And then in turn, use that information and all the leverage that's generated around this kind of work to inform conservation efforts and incentivize conservation, because Again, this biodiversity is a, is a huge resource. And then another thing I'd like to hit on is that sequencing is now not a black box. I think especially researchers in the United States and Europe who are sending off their samples to get sequenced, they don't know how that process happens, right? But now with technologies like the Minion, we can actually do the whole sequencing process ourselves. So we're actually gaining a lot of knowledge and a lot of really exciting experience that's lost when samples are sent off to be sequenced. And I think by being involved in that process and understanding what's happening, that's where innovation happens. And that's where the next person's going to think, oh, you know, this is a way to make this better. And if we keep all of this technology in the Europe's and United States of the world, then We'll never have that opportunity for that Ecuadorian student to take a look at this and say, hey, I think I can make this better.
0: Could you explain a bit about your experiences with the workflow? So library prep, sequencing?
1: So most of the work that I've done up until this point with nanopore sequencing is amplicon based. And so... The Nanopore platform is actually really a sequencer that's meant to sequence full genomes because it's such high throughput and because of its long read nature, which is really exciting. I think it makes it this amazing tool to sequence full genomes, but sometimes full genomes is a little bit too much data. And we can actually, using amplicons and using this highly multiplexed approach, we can generate a ton of data for a ton of different species, a ton of different individuals at the same time, which is also something that we really need to do. So basically, the multiplex amplicon sequencing approach consists of we take our sample, we extract the sample, and then we do a first round PCR of our region of interest. In our case, it's usually the 16S ribosomal RNA gene, which is a mitochondrial gene, which is useful in DNA barcoding, which is again, the process where we are using a genetic loci to identify a species molecularly. And so this first round PCR we do with a primer that actually has a little tail on it. And this tail serves as a second priming site for another primer called an index. And so after we do this first round PCR, we do another PCR that's usually less cycles because we already have a very amplified PCR product. And each of these primers is unique. So in our case, we have 10 different primers. And by combining these primers in different combinations, we can get up to 100 unique combinations and thus sequence up to a hundred unique samples on the same sequencing run. And of course downstream, we use bioinformatics programs to find those individual barcodes or indexes. There's kind of two camps of what those are called. I prefer to call them indexes, Oxford Nanopore calls them barcodes. And so, yeah, so then we basically have up to a hundred or in the case of a lab like the Wildlife Conservation Lab in Peru, we're using a hundred different primers. So we can create up to a thousand or more different combinations. And then we basically take all of those unique samples that now have different indexes on them. And now they're, you know, uniquely tagged and we put them all together. And it's a really fun process because it's very counterintuitive as a molecular biologist to contaminate all of your samples with all of your samples. <laughs> but it's an amazing step. So when we have these individual samples that are individually barcoded, we can't just throw them all together, you know, willy nilly, because they could be different concentrations and things like that. And if we have one sample that has a much higher concentration than another, then when we sequence, we'll only see that sample and we won't see the other samples. So that's where a process called normalization comes in. Now, normally, it's recommended to do this with something like a fluorometer, where you can actually measure exactly the concentration of the DNA, and then using that concentration, balance everything out. The fluorometer costs around $2,000, $3,000 and costs reagents. We don't have that. So instead, we use a gel. We just run all of our samples on a gel and then you know trying to keep everything as standardized as possible, the amount, the concentration of the gel, everything like that, the photos that we take we basically look at the relative intensity of the bands and estimate the concentration and then using that pool our samples. And we've had great success with that for samples up to a few hundred, which is really great because you know, it means a lot less work for the researchers and a lot less cost. And then once we have all of that, then we do purification. And so we wait to do purification specifically because it's not necessary to do any purification up until this point. And purification costs money. And we're trying to do this in a very cost-effective way. And so then we purify, we remove all of the primers, we remove any contamination from our sample, and then we have kind of this purified pool. And then we go into the nanopore kit for library prep, where we're usually using the sequencing by ligation kit where... There are two steps. The first step, we do an end prep where we're kind of breaking off the uneven ends of the DNA and preparing them for ligation reaction. And then we ligate on the sequencing adapters to our samples. And then once those sequencing adapters are ligated on, we do a cleanup. We actually do cleanups in between all of those steps as well. And then by the end, we have a very purified library with sequencing adapters on it and then this is the really amazing part especially to do with students and you know the first time i saw it it blew my mind and it every time i do it it still blows my mind we take a tiny 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 amount of this sample and you know you pick it up in the pipette and look at it and it's a few microliters and then we mix that with some buffers and load it into the sequencer and then that thing runs for days (laughs) and produces gigabytes of data and I'm just always speechless after seeing that. And that kind of really makes you think when you look at that and you see, of course, it's a, you know, it's an amplicon, so it's going to be a lot more concentrated. But when you look at that tiny amount of DNA and you realize how much information is in there, then think about the forest. Think about the jungle, (laughs) you know, these areas with just life as far as the eye can see. And it really makes you realize that there is so much data out there. And that we will never even come close to scratching the surface to understanding everything that's out there.
0: So that leads us pretty perfectly on to the next question. So the data that is generated, how do you process it and what do you do with the data that you collect?
1: Yeah, so as far as the raw data, the raw data comes out and then, you know, to make it usable, we run it through all kinds of programs. First, demultiplexing, then kind of quality control and then we use a, a de novo consensus generator such as ng species id or amplicon sorter are two tools that that i prefer to use and basically what those are doing is taking all of the reads from each sample that has now been you know separated out into the individual sample based on the demultiplexing software and it does an alignment and then says okay you know in this area we have you know, 90 sequences with an A and 10 with a G or whatever. And so the correct nucleotide here is an A. And so that kind of gets around the main issue with the Nanopore platform, which is its higher error rates than than other sequencing devices. You know, typically for us, we see error rates around 10% when we use the R9 kit, which is already a few years old and outdated at this point. But Nanopore now currently is reporting error rates of 1% and below with with their newer kits. And so that's getting better. And so this consensus strategy is really helpful to be able to get really accurate sequences from these reads. So then that gives us kind of our cleaned, ready to go sequences. And then we run them through mostly, at the moment we use BLAST and BLAST. And that, that kind of gives us this quick dirty look at whether or not the sequence exists in the international database or not, and shows us animals that it's related to and things like that. And so then that information, you know, in conjunction with a lot of other scientists who work with Fundacion Ecominga and the National Institute of Biodiversity where I'm an associate investigator, We're working right now to describe several species from that. You know, this description of a species actually takes a lot of time. It requires collaboration of taxonomists, geneticists. um, It requires field expeditions, all that kind of thing. And so it's not the fastest thing. But from the sequencing, we can at least see really quickly, okay, this sequence does not appear in the database anywhere. So we're likely dealing with something that's new to science. And so then, you know, using that, Kind of quickly be able to say, okay, do we want to invest our conservation efforts in this area or this area? And then, you know, going forward in research, we can use that preliminary data to decide which species we want to kind of research more and which ones already have a lot of research done on them and which ones don't. And really up until now, we're still working to put all of those results together. Um, I think we've generated a lot more data than we ever expected we'd be poss- would be possible to generate. And right now are kind of reeling and trying to figure out how we can deal with that. Because frankly, this amount of data and accessibility of data has never really been possible up until now. And of course, you know I only have a university degree and still learning how to, how to do a lot of this.
0: How has the data helped inform conservation efforts so far? And how do you expect the data to be used in future projects?
1: We actually recently did another project led by a really amazing researcher and close friend of mine, Walter Kilambakin, who's a researcher at the University of Iquiam, um, which is nearby Sumat-Causen-Situ in Ecuador. And he's a specialist in eDNA. And so we went to an area that the Fundación Ecominga is working to protect. So it's kind of an area that is being rapidly deforested and they're trying to go through and create reserves in the area before that all happens. And in that area, there happens to be a critically endangered species known as Atelopus palmatus, which is this really amazing like green and orange toad, a harlequin toad, which pertains to the, the most endangered group of amphibians in the world. Sadly, this toad has not been seen in at least 10 years. Right now, the consensus is that it's extinct. And so the goal of that project was to try and find the DNA of, of that species using eDNA And then kind of detecting which waterway it's in, then focus efforts even more and send researchers into that area and then work to protect that area. The first round of that was not successful in detecting the toad. We even went to the type locality, which is the place where it was described from, and it's now all cow pasture. So that's something we're still working on, looking into other techniques that might be more sensitive, because hopefully it's still out there. But uh, through that, Walter was able to detect an undescribed species of frog that's present in the area. And so that's something that, you know, we only have the sequence where have never seen the frog. We don't know what it looks like or anything like that. But it kind of indicates that through this kind of genetic work, you don't always have to have a very targeted question. I think there are a lot of things that can come up along the way. Again, a lot of the data that we're producing is showing that there are undescribed species in the area. And so right now we have data showing that in the Yangonati Sengai ecological corridor, there are around 18 undescribed species of frogs in the genus Pristamantis, which are these really amazing small little brown frogs that actually reproduce by direct development. They bypass the tadpole stage completely, unlike most frogs that you would think of. And the little frogs hatch out of the eggs as little tiny frogs. So the hypothesis is that that has allowed these frogs to diversify to areas where frogs have never been able to be before. So like the slope of a mountain where there is no standing body of water or the top of the mountain where, again, there is no standing body of water. And in the Yanganati-Senghai Ecological Corridor, it's we're actually in the tropical andes so we're talking about mountains and cloud forest and so we have these really huge geographical barriers of mountains and we see on these mountains you know each mountain might have a different species of of this frog and when you look at these frogs unless you're a very experienced morphologist most people would think they're the same species but then when we look at the dna it shows that they're actually very, very different and a lot of times different distinct species. And so currently this data is being used to figure out which of those species are new species and and how endemic they are. And then right now we're working to produce phylogenies of these. So we're working to produce kind of like an evolutionary tree that shows how these animals are related to each other. And then that will be used in a formal species description that will elevate these undescribed species to a species status and then open them up to be able to be evaluated by the IUCN red list. And then once all of that happens, then they'll have a a conservation status that will actually allow us to go to different conservation funding agencies and say, hey, look, we have this critically endangered species on the reserve, we really need help protecting it. And that's something that up until the nanopore sequencing was implemented, the sequencing part and the genetics part, it was very inaccessible and cost intensive because it required the exportation of samples and a whole extra layer of costs and bureaucracy on top of that, which now we're able to get around by doing on site. At least right now, we've identified a lot of unique species from different areas, and that's being used in these grant proposals by Fundación Ecuminga to protect these areas and to raise money to to hire local park guards and things of the sort. The research station Sumat in Situ, where we work, it was started by a man named Henry Sanchez 20 or 30 years ago, who's a local kind of self-starter, like this amazing person. And he, a long time ago, convinced his family to stop cutting down the nearby forest and farming and said, Hey, like, I think we should start doing environmental education. And his family was like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Whatever. We're never going to make money doing that. We're never going to make a living doing that. And he said, no. And, and, you know, somehow got some people on board and then started working at it. And it's been a long, hard road for him. But also now that we're working in this research, working with this technology, we're doing these courses. We're bringing students and professionals into the research station, capacitating them, and then sending them out throughout Ecuador and also now throughout Latin America. We have students coming in from all over. And that generates a a livelihood for the research station. And creates a reason for the place to be conserved and is also creating a reason for the, the entire area nearby to be conserved. And so I, I think that's something really cool about this technology is we can create these labs that kind of have their own economic robustness where they can be in turn, not only, you know, researching the biodiversity, but also supporting the conservation of the biodiversity by doing the research.
0: So that's one way that we can fight biodiversity loss in like a more local centric way. But are there any other ways? And why is it so important?
1: So research, especially in areas like Latin America, has been kind of dominated by foreign researchers who are exporting things. In the area that we've worked, there's a new reserve that has some caves. And we didn't really know much about these caves. And then after some digging, we found out that Some researchers had come, you know, a few years ago, not interacted with any local researchers, discovered a few things, published a paper in a journal in Europe, and that was it. No one ever heard anything else about it. No one in the local area knew anything about it. No one in the local area benefited from it, except for probably the guides that took them there. But... (laughs) It just doesn't make sense for this information to be sitting in a journal in Europe or in a library in Europe or in someone's hands in the other country where it could be there benefiting the local people. And I guess one other thing that I want to add is Sumac Causain Situ is located right next to Block 28, which is a petroleum concession that the Ecuadorian government a few years ago concessioned to basically open up for exploration. And so we're located in the Anzu watershed, which is basically on the side of the Andes mountains. And if you ever, if you ever come and visit, basically we're in an area that has these amazing crystal clear cold water streams and a really, really important hydrological area. And also it's limestone. So there's caves that run underneath and there's really, really clean water basically that comes from the high Andes and provides actually around a third of the drinking water for the nearby uh, city of Puyo. And then, of course, in turn, all of that water is draining into what? The Amazon basin. And so in comes a petroleum company that wants to open up a petroleum exploitation block and basically kind of exploit this area for a few weeks, contaminate everything around it, contaminate the water, and then, you know, that's irreversible. That's a chain reaction, not only for the area, but for the entire Amazon basin. And so one of the things that Sumac has really um, succeeded in over the past year, and a lot of this thanks to the research coordinator, Alex Benley, Dione Fialos, and, and Henry Sanchez, and other neighbors that have really supported that whole effort. They actually started a movement against this petroleum block and backed it up using years of research that had been done at the station. The petroleum company came in and did a macroinvertebrate survey, and they reported a very low water quality, which seemed weird to us. And after a lot of digging through this massive report, we found out that they actually had a very, very low sampling effort, and so maybe their sample was incomplete. And so we had some students go and kind of corroborate that study, redo it, and discovered that there was actually a very, very high level of diversity there, indicating a very, very high water quality, and indicating that if... If petroleum extraction was allowed to continue, that these watersheds that are some of the cleanest in the world could be polluted. And that information, you know, was given to the public, was given to the government and then used to actually, as of right now, the the block has been put on hold for the moment. And so those are the things we're fighting against, right? Corrupt, you know, people who are manipulating data. And, you know, it's stuff that just just frankly, if you look at the area, I don't even know what to say, right? It's it's an area that is just so diverse that you, you yeah, I, it just leaves me speechless. But that's something that Sumac was able to succeed at and stop that platform from going in. And we don't know at this point whether or not that is a permanent thing or whether or not it will return. And even if that is done and good to go, there are still many 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 other areas that experience similar threats the whole corridor is experiencing threats from mining from encroachment of agriculture from other petroleum threats and so you know right now we might be collecting data from hundreds of frogs that you know will be used for taxonomic descriptions things like that but also a lot of the data you know might not have an immediate use but it's creating this database that is really important because once we have this database then we can use that to fight against these corrupt interests and to say hey look you know this area is one of the most biodiverse in the world and has all of these species that we hardly know anything about and if we let our breed get the best of us we could lose you know millions billions of years of evolutionary history that we're just starting to understand
0: looking to the future What's what's next for your research?
1: Exciting. I think one of the difficult things about working with sequencing in, in biodiverse areas is there's too much <laughs> that you want to study, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, the cool thing about the whole platform is now that we have this lab set up and now that we really have the experience needed to be able to run it in a really good manner, basically, we can just walk out into the forest and find something and say, oh, I wonder what this is. Let's sequence it. And end of story so it's really an amazing thing that is really for me as you know as a scientist a, a dream come true because it allows me to explore my curiosity the fullest so right now I'm, I'm working on creating phylogenies for these species and then that will be hopefully used in the future for species descriptions hopefully we'll be doing some full genome sequencing here in the future, with the help of Nanopore, which you know, again, on site. After doing this kind of thing, I, I never want to go back to exporting samples. It just if you can do it this way, you should. And mm-hmm. and there's no, I don't think there's really an excuse not to. So yeah, working on doing some full genomes of some of these animals, and then using that full genome information to create things like SNPs that can help us understand a little bit better the the high resolution population dynamics of these species. Another thing that I'm working on right now is full mitochondrial genomes. So another really cool thing about the Nanopore platform is its long read capability. And so if you want to sequence the full mitochondrial genome with short read sequencing, you're going to have to do a lot of different PCR reactions, which would mean designing specific primers for each species, which makes this whole goal of being able to do broad biodiversity surveys very difficult. Whereas with long-read sequencing, we can instead do a long-range PCR on conserved sites of the genome, and then sequence those. And it actually works out to be a lot less expensive than traditional forms of that. And this is something that, you know, we'll be producing information from multiple loci to inform taxonomic efforts. And then as well, there are some areas in the mitochondrial genome that have hypervariability. And so as we work through this and just working to create a database of all of this, we're hoping that we'll kind of start to see population level variation in these loci that can, you know, give us even more information as to what's going on in these areas with these really endemic species. While working at the Wildlife Conservation Lab in Peru, we had a really exciting success. So I've been working with Dr. Minilani Watsa. And we're trying to monitor large mammals. And so things like jaguars or cougars or ocelots, things like that, in order to capture one of those animals, it's a huge operation, takes a lot of funding and, you know, not always possible. And so we kind of need a way to be able to get genetic information from those animals without having to capture them, without having to harm them. And so we decided to swab footprints and we swab footprints and actually were able to pick up. And amplify DNA from a jaguar this summer. We amplified a DNA barcoding region to identify the species, and that's really exciting. And then, what we want to do in the future is use DNA sexing primers or maybe um, the SNPs, SNPs, once those sets are developed, to be able to, instead of having to track down the whole animal, catch a jaguar, which you know, these are the ghosts of the jungle and um, would require a massive operation and years of, of planning and effort to do that. We can find a footprint, swab it, find the sex, find the species, and maybe in the future, a lot of other interesting things about it. So we're kind of moving into the range of less invasive genetic monitoring techniques. So that's, that's a little bit about what I'm working on now and what, what we'll be working on in the future. And I think there's a lot more to be done and a lot more exciting things to come
0: so that's all my questions thank you very much for coming on the podcast zane thank you and if you'd like to find out more about sequencing for conservation check out our in focus on the topic with oxford nanopore over on www.biotechniques.com thanks for listening and goodbye